turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, and we're finishing up this series. This has been a long series. It's a long book, but I hope and I pray that it has been a very profitable time, uh, whether through the pulpit ministry on Sundays or through your small groups, that we have come to realize and recognize in this uh, time of studying this incredible gospel of Luke, if you will, uh, his second gospel, where he tells the story uh, of the New Testament church, how it was birthed, how it grew, and how it had uh, life-changing impacts in the life of people around it, and how its testimony and its movement has gone on now for 2,000 years across the globe. We find ourselves as a church in the 21st century being changed and mesmerized by what they did, fully recognizing and knowing that we too, like them, are called to proclaim the unstoppable gospel of Jesus Christ. And over these days, we have found ourselves walking in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul, who himself in Acts chapter 9 was changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ in a dramatic conversion where he met Jesus face to face as he was going about persecuting uh, the church and seeking to destroy the movement of Christ. And we have been following him as he's taken that gospel message to all over the known world throughout the Roman Empire. He has preached to Jews and Gentiles alike. He has preached to people who are far from God and those that seemingly are close to God. He has preached to the rich and the poor. He has preached to uh, men and women. He has preached to people uh, who are high in authority, kings and governors and rulers. And he's preached to slaves and, and servants. And we are reminded through Paul's ministry that the gospel is for all. The gospel is for all. And so whoever you come into contact with this week, whatever descriptions or describers you would use to define or identify who they are, we are reminded by Paul's ministry that they too are in need of the gospel. And just as Paul went without uh, prejudice, without hypocrisy, without uh, prejudging uh, those individuals, that they took the gospel of Jesus Christ and proclaimed it to the world. That is the great theme of the book of Acts. That the world is lost, and that Jesus came into this world to save sinners from their sins, and He uses you and me, broken and flawed and finite individuals, as He did in the book of Acts, to make life change in the lives of those around us. If, if, and there's a big if, if we will be obedient to follow in their footsteps, if we will be obedient to the calling that God has as they were. Well, this morning we find ourselves in Acts 26, and we have been going through uh, Paul's courtroom experiences. For the last three chapters, we have seen Paul in front of one judge or one magistrate after another, starting in a religious court, then moving into different levels of the appellate court system within the Roman Empire. Paul comes to one of the final places of argument or defense about his uh, questioning with regards to being uh, arrested for starting a mob or a riot in Jerusalem. 
Now he's gone from the religious court. They hated him and wanted him dead. He then stood before the governor Felix, who was the provincial governor of the land. And Felix doesn't know what to do with him. And so he leaves him in prison for two years. And then Festus comes in and he takes over as Felix's successor. And he doesn't know what to do with Paul. And so he listens to Paul's arguments. And then what he does is he brings in Herod Agrippa, the Jewish leader of the area of Judea. To hear Paul's argument, Paul's defense. And what we're going to learn is, is because Paul's a Roman citizen, Paul has already asked for an audience with Caesar. And as a Roman citizen, he's given that ability to take his appeal to Caesar. Now we're going to learn that, and we'll learn this in the days to come, that that appeal is going to, in many ways, kind of come back to haunt Paul from a human standpoint. Because the Caesar that he's going to appeal to is a man by the name of Nero. And when Paul appeals to Caesar in Acts chapter 26, we recognize that Nero hasn't gone off the deep end yet. But by the time Paul makes his way to Rome, as we'll see in the next two chapters, that Nero will change. And Nero's hatred for the gospel of Jesus Christ and for Christians will bring Paul face to face with the very man who's going to execute Paul for the sake of the gospel. But from a spiritual standpoint, we see that God has been and always was and for our remembrance always is in control and that God is moving the Apostle Paul exactly where he wants him to go and putting him in front of exactly whom he wants him to be in front of. And we too need to recognize that this morning. That there are no uh, points of chance. There are no uh, opportunities that are laid before us that God has not gone before us in that way. And so this morning, we come to Acts 26. And I'm going to read our passage. And much of what I'm going to read, you're going to say, been there, done that. We've heard this already. But as I'm going to remind you in a moment, that all of Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training us, the people of God, in righteousness. And so I want you to listen as I read, taking in and saying, Lord, why is this passage here for us? Why are you repeating these same things over and over again? And I'm going to hopefully be able to show you why I believe Luke wrote these things down through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So let's read this passage. It's a lengthy passage, so follow along with me. Then I'll ask for God's blessing. And then I want to draw out two points this morning from our text. So Verse 1 of chapter 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews. Especially because you, Agrippa, are familiar with all the customs and the controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. 
Why is this thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. It's in connection to this that I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and as a witness to the things in which you have seen me, and to those in which I appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from the darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they might receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Him. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and return to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and, the, and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And when he was saying these things in his defense... Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king himself knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, Do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God, I would to God that not only you, but all those who hear me this day might become as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and ask your blessing on your word, the reading of it. I pray for the preaching of it, Lord, that I might speak boldly and powerfully for your namesake alone. 
And Lord, I also pray for the hearing and, and the learning of your word. Open our hearts, open our minds. Lord, we've got some evaluating to do in this message. So I pray, Lord, that we would be willing uh, to put ourselves under your test and your test alone to see if we are truly where we believe we are. And Lord, I pray that if that's the case, that we will do the very things that come to those who are obedient to your word. Lead us and guide us now, we ask. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. Well, this morning, as we look at this text, I want you to know that there's a bit of a confession that I need to make. And the confession is, it's been really hard for our preaching team to teach these texts over and over and over again. Three times now, in the last three chapters, we have seen Paul share the same story in a very similar situation to a similar group of people. And we can read this in chapter 26 and say, we've been there, we've done that. And so we read in what Paul uh, announces to the people in his defenses. And what we'll do is we'll say, and he says, yada, yada, yada. And the people responded with this, that, and the other thing. And we gloss over the idea of what God is wanting to share. And as a preaching team, we were sitting there going, maybe we just take all of these as we were planning out the calendar. Maybe we take all of these defenses and we put three chapters into one sermon and we just knock it out of the ballpark. Well, people are fresh with it and they're excited to read about it. But then we were reminded of a truth that I think is important that you know. And that is all scripture is God breathed. All scripture is inspired by God. And so we have to ask the question this morning, Luke, why would you spend three chapters talking in essence about the same three things unless there's something in this that you want us to know? Is there something in the fact that you repeat over and over and over again now? Paul's testimony how he was changed by Jesus, how he was before he came to Christ, how he met Jesus and now what he is after Christ, and whom he has preached to over these many years? Is there something for us to glean from it? Well, I believe there is. And I think as we look at Acts 26, I want to kind of review back, and I want to do so under a heading of looking at something very, very significant. Because every time Paul had an opportunity to give his defense in a courtroom experience, he shares the same story. I've been changed by Christ. I am no longer the one who lives, but it is Christ who lives in me. Do you have that story this morning? And in whatever situation or circumstances you find yourself in, is that the story? There's a hymn that says, I love to tell the story. Do you love to share that story? But I want you to notice, Paul, in the three times that he gives this story, there's a very little difference from Acts 23 and 24 to what he says in Acts 26. His story remains consistent. And that's a reminder that our story of the gospel needs to remain consistent. But what I want you to see this morning is the reason why I believe we see it over and over again. It isn't because Luke thinks that we're not getting it. But what Luke wants to do is show that Paul shares the same story, but as he shares the same gospel, that there are different responses to that gospel. Write that down. There are different responses to 
that same gospel that Paul preaches. And what I want us to recognize this morning is that there is something significant to what's going on here. We are told in Acts 25, three different times by Luke, and again, any time in a passage of Scripture, if there is a repeating or a repetition to something, a word or a theme, we need to draw it out and ask the question, why? Is there a reason what Luke is trying to tell us that connects an an, an idea or a thought? Three times we are told that all of this transpires in the city of Caesarea. So in Acts 25, we see that he wants us to know and never forget that all that Paul is being a part of is taking place in the city of Caesarea. Now, the city of Caesarea isn't all that important of a city from a a lot of world views back in the day. So let's understand where it's at. Caesarea, if you, if you have a difficulty seeing, Caesarea is the one city name that juts out into the Mediterranean Sea. It's 70 miles northwest of the capital city of Jerusalem. And it would take, uh, in a car today, about an hour and a half to get from Jerusalem to Caesarea. Now we know Paul has been in Jerusalem, that he's brought a large amount of money to bring relief to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem because of a famine that had taken place. Now Paul had taken this and he is uh, received by the church and by the Pharisees and religious leaders with great anger and hostility. And because of that, a mob breaks out and he is accused of creating a treasonous mob or riot against Caesar and against the peace that Rome brings. And so now, he's taken from Jerusalem to Caesarea. Now Caesarea isn't known for a lot of things except for two kind of important things. The first one is the reason why it's named Caesarea. Really the city was the city of Philippi. But when the Romans came in, they renamed the city Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea comes from the root name Caesar. The ruler, the king the uh, uh, omnipotent one who rules and reigns in Rome, Caesar. He's the guy in charge. Now there's a lot of Caesareas all over the Roman Empire. And the Caesareas were named for it because they were the provincial capitals. They were the government seat that Rome established in different places that it had taken over rule. And they placed these Caesareas there to say, listen, don't ever forget who's in charge. And so Caesarea Philippi was where, of course, the rulers of the region would live. Now there's another important reason why Caesarea is an important place. Turn in your Bibles for a moment to the book of Matthew. If you're in the book of Acts, keep your finger there. But I want you to go back a couple books in the New Testament to the book of Matthew. So go to your left. You're going to go through, of course, Acts, and then work backwards from John and, and Luke, and then Mark, and then the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. And I want you to look at verse 13 with me. Because something incredibly significant happened in the same city years before Paul is on trial for preaching Christ. 
In Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13, we've got Jesus and the disciples. Notice what it says in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of, help me out, Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? He wants to know, what's the word about me? You've been hanging around me for a while, and you go out, and when you're by yourself, apart from me, who do people say that I am? Notice what some of the answers the disciples give. Some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. Still others say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But then he turns it to them. And he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter replies, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. Now, that is a significant passage of Scripture, first of all, because of where that passage takes place. In the city of Caesarea, a city dedicated to whom everybody believes is in charge, to the one who Romans said was God, in a city that has been defined or named for the closest thing anybody could get to God, Caesar, who do you guys say that I am? Here, Jesus is God. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God in human flesh. And he says, I want to know, in a city that defines someone else as God, are you with them? Are you with me? And Peter describes that he's not one of the prophets. He's not John the Baptist reborn. Who he is, is he is the Christ. He's the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Can I tell you this morning... That the question that Jesus asks of his disciples is the same question he asks every man, woman, and child in this world. The most important question you will answer is not where you live, not whom you'll marry, not um, uh, who your friends will be, or what house you will buy. The most important question that you will ever have to answer is who do you say Jesus is? Who is Jesus to you? Is he some nice guy? Is he some good teacher? Is he some foolish lunatic? Or is he Lord? Paul is on trial because in the same city that Jesus asked the question, Paul says uh, unapologetically, emphatically, without any illusions or any shadows, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he's on trial for it. And as he proclaims that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, there are varied responses to that statement. And can I remind you this morning that that's true of us today? In our passage, in looking at the last three chapters where we've been, we see five varied responses to who Jesus is. To the proclamation that Jesus is the Messiah. And what I want to do is I want to use this time to first of all, allow it to be an evaluating tool for each of us. Because many of us will say, well, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. But we have to ask the question, are we really? One of my uh, youngest son Luke's favorite games to play is the game Guess Who. Maybe you're aware of this game. Uh, it's a game he has loved since he was a little boy, and he uh, just recently said, Dad, let's play a game, and we pulled out Guess Who, and he beat me three times very, very quickly, all right? And so I told him to go play this game with your mom now. Now, Guess Who is a great game. 
It really is. Even when you get beat, it's a, it's a fun game. And it's a game of asking questions. So what you do is you pick a character. So we picked in this picture Daniel. He's going to be our guy. And, and my opponent, Luke's job is to uh, figure out through a series of deductive questions that Daniel's my guy. And if he can say, are you Daniel? He wins the game. But he's got to ask questions. So he's going to say, um, does your guy wear glasses? Well, no. Does your guy have blonde hair? Well, no. Does your guy, um, uh, is your guy a man or a woman? He'll ask all these different questions and I will respond, no, no, no. And as I do, he's able to knock down the different tiles of the people that those things don't uh, correspond with. All the while getting to a place of deduction that Daniel, in fact, is the guy I'm playing. I want you to do a bit of a game of guess who this morning. I'm going to ask you some questions, if you will. I'm going to describe some things, and I want you to ask the question, are you describing me? Is that where I'm at? Not who you want to be, not who you're pretending to be, but who you really are. Because if you don't get this answer right, You will stand before God, and and as Jesus says, many on that day will say, Lord, Lord, did I not do this? Did I not do that? And Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. You say, but I went through all this religious fanfare and all of that. Surely that will get me into your heaven. And God will say, depart from me. So we need to do some work. So notice the varied responses. First of all, and I'll go through them quickly. The first response we see with the gospel and Jesus being the Christ, the son of the living God, is that there will be those who oppose it. There will be those who oppose it. So in Acts 23, the first court case or courtroom appearance that Paul makes is before the Sanhedrin, which is a group of Pharisees and Sadducees. These are the religious leaders, and Paul stands before them, and he says, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's the Messiah. He's the one the prophets have proclaimed and prophesied about, and I have been changed by him. And he came to change the world and bring people close to God. And the people that he's speaking before are the religious leaders of the day. They know the Word of God as good as anybody does. They've dedicated their life to uh, wanting to uh, find the Messiah and pursue the Messiah and obey the Messiah. So then what would cause them, when Jesus comes into the midst, when Jesus preaches God and and His relationship with the Father, when He uh, shows His power and His abilities through signs and wonders when he's hung on a cross and rises from the grave, why would these men who were waiting for Messiah oppose him? Paul says Jesus is the Christ. And what do they want to do to Paul because he proclaims that? They want to kill him. Talk about opposition. They want to shut him up once and for all. They say he's not even worth living. Why would religious people do that? Because it is my belief that the Pharisees wanted Messiah, longed for Messiah, were waiting on Messiah, but not God's Messiah, their Messiah. They were looking for a God, they were looking for a Savior, they were looking for a, a Messiah that would come and live according to their rules, their regulations, fit their mold, like the people that they like, dislike the people they don't like, They, in essence, wanted a Messiah of their own making. 
So Jesus comes on the scene. And Jesus lives according to his Father's will, not human will. Jesus preaches his Father's words, not the Pharisees' words. Jesus is a friend to sinners, not a friend to the Pharisees. And because of that, they mark off their list, this can't be my Messiah. He doesn't agree with me. He isn't the kind of Messiah that I'm looking for. Can I tell you this morning that the spirit of Phariseeism and Sanhedrinism and Sadduceeism, all of those guys back in the day that preached and talked a good game of waiting for Messiah and are opposing the very Messiah who came is because he wasn't the type of Messiah they were looking for. That spirit is alive and well today. And so what we have is we don't have the harshness of it. We have subtlety. And what we have in our culture is people that will say, I love Messiah. I love Jesus, right? They will talk with with great uh, words that they love the teaching of Jesus. But they have what I call Dalmatian theology. They pick spots in the Bible that they like and leave the other spots out. So they'll pick words or phrases of Jesus that, you know, uh, love one another and, and uh, uh, love your neighbor as yourself and, and don't judge. And, and they pick these things and they pull them out like they are part of a cafeteria line of a, of a buffet. We'll have a little of this Jesus and a little of that Jesus. But all the while they're leaving parts of Jesus on the table. And so what inevitably will happen is they will construct a Jesus of their own making. Listen, this is cultural, this is media Jesus. When people will say, man, I love Jesus, I love the teachings of Jesus, well, they love certain teachings of Jesus. And they'll inevitably go to the Sermon on the Mount, and I will say really the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, the first really about 20 verses. Because after you get out of Matthew uh, chapter 5, the first 20 verses, Jesus gets really serious. Jesus gets really what they would say bigoted. Jesus becomes really, really harsh. Jesus becomes altogether intolerant. But that's not the Jesus they want. And so when these individuals proclaim part of Jesus, but not the whole, a person will come on and you'll see it on a news program or a TV talk show, and they'll say, but listen, Jesus said other things. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And the same people who say, I love Jesus. I love Kumbaya Jesus. Let's all get together and have a group hug. But the Jesus you're talking about, I want nothing to do with him. That ain't my Jesus. And some maybe even here this morning have constructed a Jesus of the Pharisees. I'll take Jesus as long as he fits my paradigm. I will follow Jesus as long as he does what I want him to do. I will love Jesus as long as he allows me to do the things that I want to do. I will make my own Jesus. Jesus will not make me. And when you fall into that, Paul makes it abundantly clear we are standing in opposition to the one and true God the one and true Savior? Are you in opposition to the gospel by sugarcoating it or changing it to make Jesus something he is not? Number two, we see in Acts chapter 24, he stands before now, after standing before the Sanhedrin, he moves now into the Roman uh, appellate court where he stands before the governor Felix. Felix is a Roman governor 
who has married himself into a, uh, a marriage with a Jewish woman. And so he has some involvement, some knowledge of what's going on. And he's brought in to bring order to this chaos, this controversy of the Jews. And so he begins to listen to what Paul is saying. And does he oppose Paul? No, in Acts 24, in fact, it says he doesn't oppose him at all. In fact, he engages with him. Look at Acts 24, starting, um, let's see here in verse 24. Acts 24, verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak. That doesn't sound like opposition, right? Heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. I, I want you, if you underline in your Bible, underline that word opportunity. That's an important word. As it is convenient, I will bring you back to me. He still sounds incredibly open, but there's an opportunity. What is the opportunity? Luke tells us, verse 26, at the same time, Felix hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. The second response that we get with regards to the gospel is that there's an opportunity for you to gain something. Felix saw conversing about the gospel as an opportunity. And the opportunity was a monetary one. Now why in the world would the governor Felix, who seemingly has all the wealth that he needs and all the prestige that he needs, why would he seek money from a, uh, a, a prisoner? Well, let's think back. Context is king, right? Why in the world would this happen? Well, let's remember. Paul comes into Jerusalem. And what does Paul bring into Jerusalem? Money. Remember? He brings money. All the money that he had collected from uh, the Gentile churches to bring as an offering. Scholars believe that this offering would have serviced hundreds, if not thousands of people for a significant ser uh, a season of time. So what Felix knows is, man, this guy came into the city with bags of money. Maybe he's got more where that came from. Maybe enough people will hear that he's in prison and all of his followers will come and they'll bring me money and I'll release him. If he bribes me, I'll release him and I will be all the more uh, richer as a result. So... If I'm going to do that, i got to engage in conversation with this guy and play with him a little bit and pretend that I'm listening to what he's saying as he converses. But really at the end of the day, the gospel is not to change me. It is to justify um, a, a means to an end. The end, I want to get rich or whatever we want it to be. So that asks the question this morning, have you pursued the gospel, not for the gospel's sake, not for your sake of being saved, but because it gets you something? Some of you may be here this morning, not because you're changed or wanting to be changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, but you're here this morning because it will get you something that has nothing to do with Jesus. Maybe this morning you're here, young person, and the only reason why you're here is because you want mom and dad to think you're okay with God. 
But you know, as much as I know, that as soon as you're out of your house, this experience of going to church will be the first thing crossed off your list. Maybe you're a spouse this morning, and you recognize you're not going to get the things you want out of your spouse if, you, uh, if they know you're not in this. And so you play along. You go along for the ride. Recognizing if I want a happy spouse, if I want a spouse who's going to do things for me, then I've got to play the part of liking their religion, liking their God, and so I go along in the process. When I was early on dating Amanda, I did what is anathema for many young uh, Christians to do, and that is I started dating a girl who was very religious, but who did not have a real relationship with Jesus Christ. Amanda was a non-believer when we started dating. Okay? And you can judge that as you want, all right? And I was told by uh, my mentors, including my dad and my youth pastor, this was dangerous ground. This was not the best place to be as a young man to yoke yourself too deeply uh, with a non-believer. And so very quickly I began to present Christ to her and, and we had debates and we had discussions. Many of our first encounters uh, were more about Jesus and more about why she needed to be saved than it was about our likes or dislikes. Because I knew if this thing was going to work, she had to come to know Christ. And about a month into our dating, a situation took place that gave a pristine opportunity for me to share the gospel unapologetically. And I didn't do it, listen, with any kind of uh, ultimatum that if you don't do this, that I'm uh, not going to uh, be with you anymore. And unbeknownst to me at that moment, she said, you know what, I want to get saved. I, I want to um, pursue Christ. I want to live for Christ. And I was so excited. I remember going home and it was before we had cell phones that didn't cost you $14 a minute to, to call. And so I waited to get home and I woke my mom and dad up and I said, she, she's bowed the knee to Jesus. She's in a relationship with Jesus and I'm expecting that balloons are going to go off and, and they're going to be all excited. And my dad looks at me and he says, we'll see. We'll see. I'm like, what are you talking about? Why would you not be excited that the love of my life has come to know Christ? She, he said, because people will do anything to stay in a relationship. And then he said, I don't know why she would want to do that with you, but... <laughs> but how true is that? How many young people have bought into that their, their future spouse is a follower of Jesus Christ and really all it is is they want to hang out with you. They want to be with you. You see, there's a lot of us who maybe unbeknownst to us, even in our own thinking, until today, have never seen it that the gospel really isn't about Jesus, it's about an opportunity for us. The American gospel that's being permeated in our country is a gospel that says, what can Jesus give for me? Instead of what can I receive from Jesus? Jesus is not a means to the end. He is the end. And the sum total of all that we pursue and strive after. So are you opposing it? Are you seeing it as an opportunity? Notice the third one. Do you make it an object of ridicule? In the third installment of the trials, in Acts 25 and 26... Paul has spoke before Festus, who is Felix's successor, and he listens to the gospel, and he brings Herod Agrippa into the mix. That brings us into Acts 26. And as Paul is preaching, 
Notice in verse 24 of Acts 26. And when Paul was saying all these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Of which Paul says, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, for I am speaking true and rational words. How many of you have been proclaiming Christ or sharing the life change of Jesus Christ in your families, in your neighborhoods, in your workplaces, in your school, only to receive ridicule and mocking as a result? Let's see a show of hands. How many of you have gotten like, are you crazy? You're not around family like I am. You're not around friends like I am, right? Because I start talking about my walk with God, what I believe about Jesus. And I'll tell you, even in my uh, other work as a, as a boss in a catering company, even some of my employees go, that's craziness. You really believe that? Not too long ago, I was asked, do I believe that Adam and Eve were real people? Do you really believe that Adam and Eve were walking around naked in a garden and that a serpent came and and tempted them with a, a fruit from a tree in the middle of the garden and that because of that, you guys, or we all got plunged into sin? You really believe that? I said, absolutely. That's crazy. And yet, this is what Paul is called. You've lost your mind. And one of the ways that people will respond when you're open and honest about the gospel is they'll ridicule you. Richard Dawkins, a very famous atheist, says the only response to people who follow the Bible is to rightly ridicule them to no end. Because what they believe is absolute absurdity. That's what the world thinks of what we believe. The world, whether they want to be honest or not, or share it to our faces, and some will, as Festus does, but i got to imagine that that group of people are sitting there going, really, Paul, you've lost your mind. So I want you to imagine for a moment what your neighbor is thinking. Every Sunday you get up, they're cleaning their yard, they're washing their car, they're doing family time, going to travel sports, and they're just having a day to watch more TV. And you, they watch you get up every Sunday, load up the family, head to church, and then they see you heading out for small group and youth group, and you're at church all the time. And they say, what are you doing there? Well, we sing to an invisible God. We tell about how great He is. Then we listen to a man get up and rant and rave about how awesome this Jesus is, this guy that lived 2,000 years ago who died on a cross and we believe rose from the dead and we give our lives to Him. And we give our money to Him. And we believe when we die, we don't just close our eyes, but we're going to stand before this God and He's going to let us into a place called heaven. We've never been there. We've never seen it. Listen, we've never even talked with anybody in real life who's been there or done that. But we believe and it's the great hope that we live. And your neighbor, if he's really honest with you, go, it's time to move. Right? Are you kidding me? Well, how do you talk to this guy? I, I pray to him. Pray to who? God. Or do you see him? No. Does he talk back to you vocally? No. But he leads me and guides me. Listen, in our world, we call those types of people crazy. We call them crazy, right? And we need to recognize, and, and this is, and here's the thing. If you're not being called crazy for some of this stuff, then the world doesn't know what you really believe. 
And so you're sitting there going, I've never been called crazy. Well, have you ever told people what you actually believe? You'll be called crazy. Now, listen, that doesn't mean every time a Christian is called crazy is because it's Jesus' fault. Some of you are just downright crazy. All right? You're crazy. It has nothing to do with the gospel. But I will tell you, the gospel will cause people to think we're crazy. And they'll make us objects of ridicule. Finally, we see of the, of the, of the responses that don't do any good, some will be open to it. Enter Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa is a Jewish man. Herod Agrippa has been around Christianity. Herod Agrippa has been around uh, the teachings of Christ, the movement of Christ. You see, Herod Agrippa is the last of the Herods. The last of the Herods. Herods are kind of like the Caesars in Rome. The Herods were the ones who ruled over Judea, over the land of Israel. They weren't a good lot of guys. In fact, Herod Agrippa's probably as good as they got. You see, Herod Agrippa's family had been ruling since before the birth of Christ. His family, one of his relatives was the one who sought to kill Christ as a baby. The story of uh, Bethlehem, the killing of the innocents, all the boy babies under two years of age, let them all be slaughtered in trying to uh, kill Christ in the process process after he had heard from the magi or the wise men. Another Herod and his family of Agrippa's family had killed John the Baptist, had beheaded John the Baptist and put his head on a platter. These aren't altogether nice people, okay? Another Herod had been empowered during the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So Herod Agrippa, when he comes in, and the reason why Paul says, Oh Agrippa, listen, I consider myself fortunate that it's before you that I'm going to make my defense. Because notice what he says in verse 2. I'm going to make my defense against all accusations of the Jews because especially you are familiar with all the customs and all the controversies of the Jews. You know what's going on. Herod Agrippa, you know the movement of Christ. You know, every time your family has tried to destroy us, we've only gotten stronger. And you know it is because we believe with all our heart that Jesus Christ has been risen, has been raised from the grave. And so Grippa is fully aware of what's going on. He knows the impact that Christ has had on thousands of his people. He knows there's something to it. And notice what Paul does when he shares his testimony in Acts 26, verse 26 through 28. He says the following, For the king knows, King Agrippa, you know about these things. And to you, King Agrippa, I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things have escaped King Agrippa's notice. For this has been not done, in a, it's not been done in a corner, meaning it's been seen in plain sight. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? With some words you think I'm going to believe? Well, listen, he was open to it. There was enough truth. There was enough veracity to the truth of the claims of Christ that he was willing to keep an open mind. Right now, you are in the midst of people at work, at school, in your neighborhood that are open to the claims of Christ. And we should be thankful for that. And we should take every opportunity to preach and proclaim Christ. But I want you to know with regards to salvation, salvation is not a game of horseshoes or bocce. Close isn't good enough. Being close or open to the gospel doesn't mean you are obedient to the gospel. 
And so we need to recognize that close isn't good enough. It is not close, but sadly, there's no cigar with it. So is that true of people you know? That they're open, but they're not there? None of these responses, whether ridicule or openness or opposition, will work. The only way that we can respond to the gospel is to obey it. To obey it. We have to obey it. We need to recognize Paul is the character that we need to follow. Not any of these other people who respond wrongly, but to Paul who receives it and believes in it. And notice in Acts 26 is the third time we hear Paul's story. And I want to just speak very quickly to Paul's story. Paul's story is that he came into contact with Jesus. Just like each of these other people did, they received the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, they heard it from Paul. Paul had heard it from Jesus himself. And Paul was far from God. But I want you to recognize this morning, with regards to the gospel, something that we do. In our vernacular in churches today, we talk about how people should accept Jesus as their Savior. And I'm going to tell you that that's theologically wrong. You can disagree with me, but here's how we look at it. We go into the pet store of worldviews and beliefs, and we go in and we go into that place, that little cylinder where they carry all the puppies, right? And we see all these little puppies, and we're open to bringing home a puppy. We're open to buying into what someone else is selling. And so we go, and they're all cute, and they've got all their different quirks and, and things, and we pick out, I accept this one to bring into my life. And so we take the puppy out of the thing, and we say, I love you because you were the cutest, or you have the beautiful uh, spots, or whatever you've got, or you're the most uh, cordial to me, or gregarious, this is the kind of dog I want. And we take this dog, and we bring him into our own. And that's what we do with Jesus. We look at Jesus amongst all the other gods... And we say, well, this God's got this, I like that, but I really like this Jesus. I want this Jesus to come home with me. So I accept this Jesus, and we pull Jesus out of many, and we receive him. And we take him to be ours. I want you to know that's not what the New Testament speaks about the gospel. What the, Testament, the New Testament speaks about the gospel is the gospel is a command given by a superior officer to you and me, people who are far less than that superior officer, being God. God says, I am offering you something, and the way that you receive it is by obeying the command to do something. So notice the words that are given about becoming a follower of Christ. Repent. Turn. Believe. Follow. All of these, all the time, every time, in the New Testament, are commands, not suggestions, not offers. Commands, do this, do this, believe this, repent of this, trust this, follow this. They are to be commands that are obeyed. So when you came to know Christ, you did not accept Christ as if he was there on sale for you to take. You heard the gospel call and you made a decision. Will I reject it or will I obey it? And for those that are truly saved, you have obeyed the command of God and because of it you've been saved. But I want you to notice what keeps people from it shows us that this is a command, not a suggestion. 
Paul says, listen, when I was persecuting the church, notice verse, uh, 15, uh, verse 14. He says, when I heard, when we had all fallen to the ground, when Jesus appeared to him, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to fight against the goads. What in the world is he talking about? What are goads? Goads in Paul's day was a long stick that had a, a, a thorn or some sort of bone or some sort of metal at the end of it. So this is the long stick and at the end it had this little poker on it. And so what would happen is, is as a, a shepherd was leading sheep, as a, uh, a horseman was uh, working with a team of horses or, or cattle, to get them to go in the direction he wanted them to, he would poke at them with the goad. And he would poke saying, don't go this way, I want you to go this way. So he would poke them as they head that way. And what Paul is being told is that he's been kicking at the goads of God in his rebellion. And so what would happen is, is as you would goad an animal, the animal would instinctively kick back at the person saying, cut that out. I don't want to go the way you want me to go. And so I'm going to rebel. I'm going to fight. I'm going to do everything in my power to stop the goading. And what Paul is being told is that all the while he's been living, God has been goading him to turn, believe, to follow. And for the longest time, he's kicked, he's rebelled, and he finally gave up. And he finally obeyed. So as you are one who is maybe far from God, what goads is God putting before you? I will tell you some of them. Some that I've heard from our own people that kicked at their goads, a life that lacked fulfillment. So they filled their life with all sensuality and all kinds of all these different things of the world. I'm going to fill my life with all this stuff. And it never filled me up. And God was goading, turn to me. God was goading, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. And so we've got all these things that we're pursuing. And in our rebellion, we're kicking. And Paul finally said, it's not worth kicking at these goads anymore. I'm going to believe. What goads are you kicking at today? So let me close with this. My second point, really, really short, so take heart. Let's go back to our game, the game of guess who. Which one are you? Now right away you'll say, because you're in church and you're here on Sunday, you'll say, I'm Paul, I obeyed the gospel. Well, let me ask you three more questions then. If you say you are obedient to the gospel, let me ask you three questions as I close. Have you been transformed? Because in Acts 26, we are told, once again, the third time in three chapters, how Paul went from being a man who hated Christ and hated Christians to a man who loves Christ and wants to bring people into the kingdom of God. What changed? An experience where he obeyed once and for all Jesus as his Lord and Savior. So let me ask you this. You say you're obedient to the gospel. What areas of transformation have taken place in your life? Are you speaking in a way that you didn't speak prior to meeting Christ? Are you living in a way that prior to being Christ wasn't the way you lived? Are your desires, your pursuits, the things that you long for, are they the same that they were when you were in death and, and darkness? 
Or are they different now because you've met Christ? What aspects of transformation have taken place in your life? Don't just say with your mouth that you're obedient if you're not living up to those things. Paul says that there are acts of repentance that will show us if we are truly believers or not. Are you transformed? Number two, what do you treasure? What do you treasure? Paul goes on at the end of our chapter... And Agrippa says, in short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, meaning however long it takes, whatever it demands, I would to God that not only you, but all those who hear me to this day might be become such as I am, except for these chains. Paul says, listen, I'll do whatever I have to. I'll take whatever time is necessary to preach and proclaim Christ to you so that you can become a follower of Christ like me. And the only thing that I don't want you to have of my life is the chains. I don't want you to have my suffering. I want you to have all the blessings that come with it. So let me ask you the question this morning. Does comfort, do your finances, do your family, do your pursuits, what are the things that you treasure? Paul says, as an obedient follower of Jesus Christ, the one thing I treasure is that I can find others who will be obedient with me, and I will strive and I will work to that end until God calls me home. And what that means is that we need to be testifying. So that's the third question. Are you telling others about it? Three times now, Paul could have shared anything he wanted in these court experiences, but he chooses to share his story and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are you doing that this morning? Are you showing the world and showing the God that has saved you that you are obedient to his gospel by being transformed by it, by treasuring it above all other things, and by testifying to it?